This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 12. John 12, and we will be looking at verses 12 through 22. We arrive at the point tonight where Jesus makes his final journey to Jerusalem. So John chapter 12 verses 12 through 22. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that you would illuminate by your Holy Spirit our hearts so that we can receive it, that we would recognize the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his kingly glory. Though he has not come as the kings of this world come, with armies, with weapons, with chariots, he has come in power, and he has come as a conquering and triumphant king. And yet we also see as we approach the end of Jesus' life in his word that the time of his death approaches. And I pray, Father, that you would point us, point our hearts and minds to the cross, and we would recognize the great atoning sacrifice that Christ made for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would you do if the President of the United States came to town? Now, probably a lot of how you would answer that question would depend on who the President is and how things are going. So maybe let's change the question a little bit. Let's say your favorite President, whoever that may be, is still in office, and he's coming to town. He's coming to Tripp County for a visit. 
What kind of treatment would the commander-in-chief get? Suppose you were put on the committee that was tasked with making all the arrangements. Well, you'd probably want to make sure the president got a proper welcome. Maybe if he drove, he would be welcomed by a parade or where people could come and line the streets and cheer and wave. Or if he flew in on Air Force One, I don't know if the runway's long enough, but let's say he tried, you could maybe have the airport decorated, have all the VIPs of the community there to greet him. You'd probably want him to have good accommodations while he was here. You'd want to get him the nicest room at the nicest hotel. They do call those presidential suites for a reason. You'd want him to have the best food. You'd want him to see the nicest and most important places in the area. You'd want to leave a good impression on the president because he's the president. We don't have a king in America. That's probably the closest thing to a royal treatment that we could imagine. As we have worked our way through the Gospel of John, we've been building towards a climax, towards a confrontation, a final showdown in Jerusalem. We have seen throughout John Jesus having various confrontations and brushes with the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. Yet we have also been told at various times in various places that even as these confrontations have occurred, Jesus' time had not yet come. Though they've even tried a few times to kill Jesus, they tried to stone him. Jesus does not fear them because Jesus as the Son of God, is sovereign over his own suffering and death. He's not going to die until it's the appointed time for him to die. But here in the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, we now see that time drawing very near. We are down to the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry before his suffering and death. But the week is not going to start exactly how one might expect a week of suffering and death to go. It will begin in triumph. The paradox of Jesus' ministry is that he is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the King and Lord and ruler of all things. He has all authority, all power, all dominion. And yet he has taken on the form of a humble servant, a man, not a particularly impressive man, a humble son of humble Galileans. And yet his glory as God and king cannot help but break through, even though he is in his estate of humiliation. He has performed great signs and wonders. He is provided food and drink miraculously. He healed those who had no prospect or hope of being healed by natural means. And then recently, in his greatest miracle yet, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. These displays of divine power have brought many over to Jesus' side. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 that the Galileans were ready even back then to make Jesus their king. He gave free food. That's a pretty good kingly pitch in that day. But Jesus eluded them. He did not accept that kingship that the Galileans sought to give him. It was focused on the wrong things, earthly things, food, government, the kind of things that most kings are occupied with, but not Jesus. 
And that kingship that they offered Jesus was not big enough. Jesus didn't come to just be the king of Galileans or even the king of Jerusalem or the king of the Jews. He is all of those things, but he is more. He is God. He is the Lord and king of all things. Now, he is occasionally recognized as such by some of his followers, but he is often resisted and rejected. This was not a unique problem to Jesus' incarnation. Jesus is always king, everywhere, at every time, over everyone and everything, but his kingship is often resisted and rejected. And yet for some, for Jesus' sheep, those who belong to him, they cannot help but to worship Jesus and praise Jesus and serve Jesus as their king. They give him and him alone the royal treatments, what we would give our favorite president and even better. And if we would give the president such a welcome, how much greater of a welcome does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator and governor of all the earth deserve? We see a great display of this glory and honor being given to Jesus as Jesus makes his triumphal entry for the final showdown in Jerusalem. And so we look at this entry tonight in four points. First, we see a praised king in verses 12 and 13. Jesus is given a grand and kingly reception as he rides into Jerusalem. Second, we see a prophesied king in verses 14 through 16. We see how Jesus coming into Jerusalem in this way fulfills what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Third, we see a powerful king in verses 17 through 19. We see that Jesus has proven himself to have power, to have dominion over his and his people's enemies. And then fourth, we see a planetary king in verses 20 through 22. Jesus is coming not just as the king of the Jews, the king of Jerusalem. He is king over all the earth. So again, we have a praised, prophesied, powerful, and planetary king. So first we see the praised king in verses 12 and 13. We pick up the next day after Jesus' dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, where Mary anointed Jesus for his burial. This was a greeting, a reminder of death that was to come. But Jesus gets a very different reception when he comes into the city. Now, we need to establish the timeline of events here. This is not a particularly linear description of events like the other Gospels give when they describe Jesus' triumphal entry. In the others, where there is more detail, we learn that Jesus prearranges and rides in on the donkey, whereas in John, the donkey is kind of an afterthought. We don't even hear about it until after Jesus has made his entrance. It's something of an interlude looking back to previous events. Now we'll come back to the donkey and the importance of that shortly. But when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we see that he is met with palm branches. Now these palm branches, they would have been symbols of rejoicing and victory. In Leviticus 23.40, God commanded that palm branches be waved at the Feast of Tabernacles, that the people use them to express their joy as well as their expression of victory and triumph. So Jesus' followers believe that he is coming to Jerusalem as a conquering king. 
And why wouldn't they? If he has raised the dead, if even life and death are in his hands, what could stop him? We see that the crowd cries out, Hosanna. Now this is a word that as Christians we see it and hear it a lot. It may not be certain to us what it means. Well, Hosanna is an imperative. It means save now. They are crying out to God for their salvation. Now the question is, what kind of salvation are they looking for? Are they looking for Jesus to save them from their sins? Well, some are. We know that some, such as Martha in the previous chapter, have the knowledge of Jesus' ultimate triumph being at the resurrection, the the conquering of sin and death. But given the success of Jesus' earthly ministry and his miracles, some were probably looking for something more earthly. The throwing off of Roman rule, the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom in Israel. Again, something similar had happened when Jesus fed the 5,000 in Galilee. They thought someone with this kind of power should be their earthly king. But the crowd also cries out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from Psalm 118. We read it earlier tonight. Now, Psalm 118 was part of a group of psalms called the Hallel, which was sung at the Passover. It is a messianic psalm. It describes the coming of the Messiah. What kind of Messiah did they seek? Was it a spiritual savior or a political liberator? When they shouted about the king of Israel, were they talking about a king of just Israel, or of more? Well, it seems at least to a point the crowd is divided along those lines. We see a similar struggle in our day. Many try to treat Christ and his church as a worldly thing. Now, it is not as though Christianity is indifferent to the world, but the world is not primary. The most important thing in Christianity is the knowledge and worship and glory of God and proclaiming his salvation to the ends of the earth. But many want a church that is earthly and doing earthly things. Many Marxists and liberation theologians of the 20th century and continuing now, they think that Christ came to throw off political oppression and is a model for how the oppressed groups in our day can throw off their oppression. Or others think, as we saw last time in John, that Christianity is a social welfare institution, that it should primarily be focused on helping the poor, alleviating poverty. The primary mission and focus of the church is God. Knowing God and worshiping God and glorifying and enjoying him forever. Now, the church can do other things, be interested in other things too. We can care about the world we live in. We can care about people. We can care about having a just society, but we must keep the primary thing primary, which is the redemption we have received in Christ and his prescribed means by which we are to worship him. Some in the crowd that first Palm Sunday missed that. They praise a king, but they don't even understand the king that they have. Those who want an earthly liberator from Rome are going to be sorely disappointed when their king dies on a Roman cross. 
but that comes later. We now turn to our second point. After the praised king, we come to the prophesied king in verses 14 through 16. Here we learn the background and details of Jesus' arrival on the donkey. Again, the other Gospels, they have more details in their description of this. But John is focused on only one aspect of this, a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Zechariah was prophesying was that Sunday in Jerusalem when Jesus was riding in. And Jesus knows that the scriptures must be fulfilled, that he is supposed to ride in as a king on a donkey. And so he arranges the events necessary for this to come to pass. Now we get a fascinating editorial note in verse 16 from John. At the time, Jesus' disciples didn't really seem to understand the significance of what was going on. They don't recognize how the messianic signs of Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 were being fulfilled right in front of them. But when Jesus was glorified, after Jesus' resurrection, when they received the Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way from Jesus so that they are able to understand the scriptures and how they've been fulfilled, then it clicks. Then they understand how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies of the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the culmination. He is the high point of all of Scripture. Everything before points to him. All the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms, all of it in one way or another is talking about pointing to Christ. The events that are about to transpire in the following week in Jerusalem are the most important in human history, for it is in them that our redemption has been accomplished. But many, even there that day, misunderstood what was happening. But after the praised king and the prophesied king, we come to the powerful king in verses 17 through 19. We see that there were some who were among that crowd when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they did what anyone seeing a man raised from the dead might do. They went and told other people about it. They bore witness. Remember that these were of the Jews, the Judeans, the ones who had been Jesus' enemies and opponents. But we saw that after Jesus raised Lazarus, even many of his former enemies became followers. They went back to Jerusalem. They spread the word. They bore witness. And so many were gripped by this testimony that they became this welcoming multitude for Jesus. Now bear in mind, this is over and against the decrees that the Pharisees had issued. The Pharisees had previously threatened any Jew who followed Jesus with excommunication from the synagogue. And they carried that sentence out on the man who had been born blind that Jesus healed. He refused to deny Jesus, and so they cast him out. So those who showed up to praise Jesus were putting themselves at some degree of risk and danger to do it. 
We see that the Pharisees have also essentially put out a warrant on Jesus. If anyone saw Jesus, they were supposed to report him so that he could be seized and tried and put to death. But is that what the people are doing when Jesus comes to town? No. Not only are they not reporting Jesus to the Pharisees when they have been ordered to do so, they're giving him a literal king's welcome. The Pharisees' worst nightmare seems to be coming true. Their power is slipping away. Remember from last time when the Jesus held their counsel concerning the matter of Jesus, they betrayed what their true priorities and interests were. What were they worried about? Well, they were worried about two things. First, that everyone was starting to believe in Jesus. See, they had opposed Jesus all throughout his public ministry. His ways were not their ways. His teachings were not their teachings. His power was not their power. And so they were threatened by him. They were the ones in charge. They were the right and true interpreters of Scripture, or so they thought. And so any rival claim had to be suppressed, even if by violence and murder. But closely related, they were concerned about politics. They were an occupied and subjugated nation. They belonged to Rome. They were not free and independent. Now they, the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests, they did not like this arrangement with Rome, but they were unwilling to confront it. They knew what was generally true of those who rose up against the Romans. They had a hard time staying alive. They thought that the Romans would clamp down hard on Israel and remove what power and authority they had left if a large and successful Jewish movement formed around Jesus. Of course, even in this, they demonstrate a certain lack of faith. If God really purposed to liberate their nation, couldn't he do it? But they are worldly men with their worldly trust and interested in retaining the worldly things that they have. The very Messiah and Deliverer that the whole religion that they claimed to lead anticipated was right in front of them, teaching words they could hear, doing miracles they could see, and for that they hated him and persecuted him and his followers, and they wanted to destroy him. But on that Sunday in Jerusalem, it seems that they had failed for even they were forced to admit among themselves that they are accomplishing nothing. They've not been able to silence Jesus and his word. They will never be able to silence Jesus and his word. Though it will look that way for a time later in the week, like they are winning when they lie and betray and manipulate enough strings to get Jesus into court and drubbed up on charges and nailed to that Roman cross, it might look then like they're winning, but ultimately we already see their defeat. And we see the truth of the matter in their final statement here when they say, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after Jesus and the world will go after Jesus. And that brings us to our final point. After the praised, prophesied, and powerful king, we come to the planetary king in verses 20 through 22. The Pharisees speak more truth than they realize when they say that the world has gone after Jesus. We see in verse 20 that there were certain Greeks 
among those who came to worship at the Passover. Although the religious Jews were primarily also ethnic Jews, they did have converts. They had proselytes, God-fearers, who though they were ethnically Gentiles, they believed in the true God and would even make the pilgrimages to the feasts to worship God there. So we have some Greeks who believe in God, believe in the Jewish religion, and they want to come see Jesus. But they betray some hesitation. They don't come to Jesus directly like many have. They come to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, you know, one standing off to the side. And he doesn't know what to do, so he has to involve my favorite disciple, Andrew. See, the Greeks, even these Greek converts, they were second-class citizens among Jewish worshipers. Maybe they thought that the same would be true of them coming to Jesus. They'd need special permission. Maybe they weren't worthy to talk to Jesus. Now in our next section, next time, Lord willing, we will get into how they will be anything but that. But for now, we should observe here that though Jesus has ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem as its Messiah and the King of Israel, he's not just there to be the King of Israel. Just as we saw before with the kingship offered to him in Galilee, that that kingship is not big enough. Jesus came to save among the Jews and the Gentiles alike. He came not only to be the shepherd of one sheepfold, but as we looked at before, he came to make one sheepfold of the two, the Jews and Gentiles alike. He did not just come for Abraham's children, but for all of the people, all of the tribes and nations that had been lost. We've been going through Genesis, and we've been seeing all the people and the nations descended from them that have left the city of God, been taken away from the city of God, just as we saw with Ishmael this morning. Jesus came to be king over all of them, to bring all of them back to God and to himself. Jesus will not just be king in Jerusalem. He is the king of kings and lord of lords in all the earth. He's drawing a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him. Now again, we'll see more about the Greeks and their inquiry next time, but for now it is enough to know that all the world is going to Jesus and it will continue to go to Jesus because Jesus is its true king. I asked you at the beginning how you would receive the president. You'd do the best job you could. You'd give him the best of anything you could get your hands on. But a king far greater than any president or any earthly king has come into our midst. The king of the universe, the creator of the universe, God of God, light of light, Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of man. Though he became a man in a low condition, he took on the form of a humble servant. He rules over all. And not just that day in Jerusalem. And not just because he taught and did miracles. By the end of that week, as I've said, Jesus will be hanging on a Roman cross, bleeding and dying. But he will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus didn't come to free Israel from Rome. He didn't come to free Greeks from their estrangement. He came to save all of his sheep, Jews and Gentiles alike, 
from the bondage and tyranny of sin and death. He offered himself as a once for all perfect sacrifice to atone for sins. He endured the full wrath of God, which we deserved. He was raised from the dead, conquering death and hell. To those who would repent of their sins and believe in his name, trust in him with their whole heart. He is not merely king, but he is savior. And he is king because he is God, but he is king twice over because he is savior. Worship your king, worship your God, worship your savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, though he became one in a low condition under the law. He suffered all the miseries of this life, suffered all of its deprivations and needs and troubles, abandonment, loss, betrayal, and ultimately suffering and death. He became like us in every way except sin. I pray, Father, that we would know, that we would be confident, that all here gathered would believe in this gospel and in your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, but also is the conquering King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day. And I pray that in light of this glorious reality, we would be salt and light in the world, that we would take this gospel to those who have not heard, and that all that we do would bring honor and glory to our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.